This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to provide medical advice. It exists only to entertain. We now travel to the newly independent state of Virginia to visit a quaint little plantation known fondly as Mount Vernon. It is winter, 1776. It was the night before Christmas, when in Washington's house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney to dry from crossing the Delaware River to make the enemy cry. Those Hessians were snuggled all drunk in their beds when George surprised them and knocked the sugar plums clear out of their heads. And thus Martha in her kerchief and George in his cap had just settled down for a long winter's nap. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, Martha sprang from her bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window she flew like a flash, tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. What? George, there's a man outside riding on a pony with a feather in his cap, but he calls it macaroni. Then what to George's wondering eyes should appear but a miniature horse ridden by a cadet with a beard? <laughs> Why, that little old driver, so ragged and randy. I know just who it is. It's Yankee Doodle Dandy. Come here, my good man. Leave your horse by the tree. Yankee Doodle, do or die. Did somebody call for me? <laughs> Is it Concord and Lexington, man? What brings you here? Wait, what do you take me for, sir? Two-time Paul Revere? No, sir, it's the scourge is getting as bad. What's that? You don't say. Come in, come in, my good lad. George, no. He can't come inside from his head to his foot. His clothes are all tarnished with ashes and soot. But Martha, he's harmless, a right jolly old elf. Yes, but I'm the one's got to clean up after. Speak for yourself. You two stay outside. You're a right pair of rookies. But I'll fetch you a snack. Maybe warm milk and cookies? All right. Yankee Doodle, what's wrong with the troops? Tell me more. Oh, it's a smallpox, sir. It might have lost us the war. Uh, you've been sweeping through camp. A lot of soldiers are sick. You got to do something, General, because I'm... Now I'm thinking right quick. Yankee Doodle, you're right. When the smallpox attacks, it's a rival more deadly than those snooty lobsterbacks. George, remember how the doctor gave me that inoculation? That trick might save the nation. Doodle, I think it's about time that I listen to my wife. Let's round up the troops, put them under the knife. Just an old nick on the arm, then add some smallpoxy pus. Get some rest, let it heal, and it's finished. No fuss. But don't let those redcoats catch word what we planned. With our healthy troops, we might just have the upper hand. Uh, General Washington, such a nice Christmas present you gives. I might just give us poor rebels a fine chance to live. Well, it's never been tried before, this mass immunization. But hurry, Doodle, I'm counting on you to share my communication. That I order the whole army get this smallpox pest fixin'. Tell Generals Comet and Cupid and Donder and... Hancock, now doodle run fast as you can, so the Redcoats can't catch you. You're the gingerbread man. Thus, by 1777, Washington's men would march to a different tune, for they would beat the smallpox. Yes, they would now be immune. Pox inoculation would prove the perfect solution. The rebels would march on to win the American Revolution. And so that same night, Yankee Doodle rode off in due course, shouting, Merry Christmas to all! Bye! George, I think Yankee Doodle just fell off his horse. 
And I'm all right. <laughs> Nothing to see here, folks. I'm fine. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> I, it's all good. It's. I'm just going to leave now. <laughs> Bye. He's still out there on the lawn. I like that you called him Doodle. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's... Welcome, everyone. This is Poor Historians, a podcast delving into the archives of medical history. As three emergency physicians, we'll explore the unusual ailments, treatments, physicians, and all related material having to do with the healing arts. I'm Max, and I'm joined here by my good friends and colleagues, Aaron and Mike. Gentlemen, are you ready to go round two with a disease none of us have had to diagnose, thanks to rashy cows? I'm ready. Yeah. I'm glad this is a historical problem. (laughs) (laughs) Rashy cows. Gross. I'd be, t- I'd be terrified if I actually had to do this. But wouldn't that be cowpox then? Is less concerning. That, that ah. spoilers, spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> Quiet. Jeez. Either way, so shout out wise, we had uh, a fan reach out to us, and I wanted to say something about it. So many fortnights ago, we did an episode on corpse medicine, and uh, someone, probably me, asked what a dram was. And I received an email a few days ago from a listener named Liza, who has a background in apothecary and said that uh, a dram happens to be an eighth of a fluid ounce. Or, it, uh, and I wanted to double check this, you can also uh, use like a metric system. And according to Wikipedia, a dram is also equal to 3.696361195312512 milliliters in the U.S. customary system or 3.551632 <laughs> Eight one two five milliliters in the British Imperial system, and if you're wondering what the difference is between those two systems, I definitely did not feel like clicking through those links to find out. So there, there you go. We're just going to leave it right there. But I really appreciate you, Liza, asked, adding to the esoteric knowledge base of the show. Yeah, fun fact. That's how our uh, medical record actually enters the Tylenol dose for the nurses. Yeah, to measure it does. Up. oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> when it's like one hundred ninety-two point six four. Five milligrams to and you're like how in the like, world they can my the favorite out. is always ordering that based on the weight which then the computer just converts to decimal places and then <laughs> hiding from the nurse as you said but they come looking for me just they, give a dram <laughs> so but how much is a grain how much is a grain that's what Ooh. no that's we're answering one thing at a time well, no, we have maybe to, now we have to wait for a listener to write us in and tell us i'm not gonna look it up so moving on to the main part of the show, uh, we are doing Smallpox Part 2, and with that, we're going to reintroduce our guest here. So once again today, we are joined by Emmy Award-winning director, graduate of the Artist in Residency Program from the International Museum of Surgical Science, author, playwright, songwriter, and keeper of numbers, James Wilkie. He is once again back sharing his knowledge gained from the research at said museum in the creation of his exhibit, Pox Americana, How Smallpox Once Plagued America and the World, which just concluded its uh, run last month. 
James was kind enough to write the skits for this show, the opening Christmas at Mount Vernon sketch, as well as the later Edward Jenner, Blossom 2.0 Vaccine Supreme. Hello again, James. Hello. Thank you so much, Max. It's uh, great to be back with you guys again. <laughs> I'm glad, uh, glad you came back. You know, um, we can always use more smallpox, so... If I've said it a hundred times. Well, maybe you're not. absolutely right. <laughs> so just as a very, very quick overview, in part one, we took a tour of the world to kind of see how smallpox affected various countries and cultures around the world. But we sort of left it uh, left it off at the Americas. And so we're going to kind of dive into that today. And we're going to talk about the resolution of this whole smallpox madness, which, uh, as I mentioned, we don't really see anymore for good reason. And so we'll kind of pick up the, uh, the trail there and uh, talk about how this whole thing came to an end thanks to rashy cows and pokey needles yep nice. so uh yeah just just to <laughs> recap so we know smallpox has affected humanity for about sixteen thousand years according to recent science um it's a highly contagious disfiguring deadly disease characterized by fever headaches severe fatigue back and body aches vomiting and most notably those pus-filled lesions covering the body arms legs face particularly uh, you'd be left having smallpox um, for about, uh, I'd say, four to five weeks, roughly, if you survive the disease. That would so be it's so. Yeah, bad it's, bad. it's bad. It's bad. It's really bad. Yeah. Um, so it's caused by the variola virus and is only a human-to-human disease. It cannot be passed or contracted from animals. And please note again, everybody, these stories we'll discuss today about smallpox through history here are only a portion of its history around the world, as it has affected global societies through throughout history so much that we can only provide small snippets in the time that we have today. Would you say that you could go to a museum to learn more about this in the right context? You could, yes. you know. And, Actually, you uh, can't anymore because the exhibit's down. So this is the last well, vestige of smallpox knowledge we have on Earth. It's, it, you know, it just might be. But you know what? It lives on in this podcast, and that's what's important. Immortalized, as it were. (laughs) Yeah, um, we're going to start with uh, Central and South America. So in the early days of the European arrival to the Americas, they brought with them diseases that would devastate the indigenous peoples of the Western Hemisphere, allowing the invading European countries to take a foothold. Principal among these, of course, was smallpox with further killers being measles, bubonic plague, malaria, and others. Altogether, indigenous populations in the Americas would be reduced by 90% or more, primarily through these new diseases. Do we have any idea, James? I mean, do you know how many people was that, do you think? Do you, do you have any general scope of that? It's mind-boggling to oh. think about even just the percentage. But like, I looked up something that said, you know, around this time, there was at least 20 million people kind of in and around uh, Mexico City or, you know, the Aztec uh, Tenochtitlan. Tenochtitlan. Nailing that, man. Nailing that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Techno technician. Techno technician. <laughs> but there was like, you know, at least 20 million people there. And that's not even accounting so many tribes up and down. You know, this, I do, do you have any general idea? And I'll hold you, you know, to the it, number, but it's enormous, isn't it? It is enormous. And I. I don't want to hold to a number because we really don't know for sure what the population was. Um, I'm actually, and, and actually to go with that, with, with why um, we don't know is because these diseases were so devastating 
that there's a lot of, and, and we'll kind of cover this in a little bit, but there's a lot of tribes and areas in the New World where people were devastated so completely before the Europeans ever even got to meet these peoples mm. that there's no historical record of them even existing. So, you know, when, when we don't even know of groups of people that existed, it's, it's, it's hard to quantify them, Fair you enough. know? So, so, um, but yeah, so I didn't quantify a number for my exhibit, but I'm kind of afraid to apply a number because we really don't know. We, we get the, the statistics really from the people that were interacted with and the damage that we see from, you know, to those peoples. But James, I'm really glad was... you finally got the tone of the podcast. Just unremittingly terribly dark that's Ooh. great you really nailed this this is good oh man <laughs> <laughs> and you know and we're gonna stay there for a little bit so you know enjoy the ride do uh, so speaking of you know specifically how this all happened um due to an active case of smallpox on a spanish ship stopping at cozumel and veracruz on the eastern coast of early mexico in 1520 the disease spread quickly inland from native trade so I'm talking like trade, you know, between native groups, between each other. Mm -hmm. um, and so before any Europeans, just just a simple case on one Spanish ship, you know, as the indigenous populations traded with each other further and further inland, the disease very quickly reached right across the entire uh, region. So it reached the densely populated Aztec capital city of Tenochtitlan, uh, which was possibly the most populated city in the entire world at the time, like you were saying, Max, uh, that same year, reducing its population by 40% in only one year. That's a lot of people gone. Yeah. And note, like, uh, you know, kind of like I was saying a little bit ago, this devastation began before the Spanish people even saw that city. So they didn't even get to see the city in the grandeur it would have had before this disease was already, you know, just mm. wreaking havoc. Across the rest of the Aztec Empire in central Mexico, some 20 to 50% of the population also died during that epidemic outbreak, including the new emperor, Cuitlahuac, who fought off the Spanish after the capture and subsequent death of the prior Aztec ruler, Moctezuma II, in the hands of conquistador, Hernan Cortez. Hmm. So basically it wasn't the technology so much. You know, we always thought, I always thought about it from history yeah. class, you know, horses and guns, and I'm sure that helps, but this, this, it, infectious disease is really what seems to lay the pathway for the, the, con the conquest of this, this entire area of the North America or the, of the Americas. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's a discussion that I've gotten to have with a lot of people this year with having this exhibit and doing other presentations is that a lot of us, when we took history classes as children, were kind of led to believe that, you know, primarily when the Spanish came, they conquered, like you said, because they had, oh, they had horses and they had guns and gunpowder and superior weapons. But really, I think if you take take a real look at history, it was disease. That's the reason why, you know, they were able to to do what they did, um, because, you know, you're talking about 
when the Spanish are arriving and going further inland, all these people are completely devastated by this disease and struggling with it. And not only their armies, but like their entire infrastructure, right? If you're talking, you know, 40% of this major, enormous capital city is gone because of the disease within a year. You know, those are your your farmers, your tradespeople, your everybody, including soldiers. So, I mean, just incredibly devastating. Yeah. So it's like, you know, if you were to to think like in modern times, like if a disease were to hit, you know, hit a group of people and another group of people doesn't have that same, you know, it doesn't have the same devastating effect on them. Yeah. They could just go right in and take Mm -hmm. over. Like it's, but yeah, it's, it's funny how in history classes, I think it, it doesn't get smallpox doesn't get the, I hate to say credit. It doesn't get the, um, it's a recognition that it deserves, right? The, the recognition, yeah, as really, you know, that and these other diseases as that I, I mentioned as the real reasons why the Europeans were able to come in and take such a big foothold, you know, particularly I mean, we, the Spanish. We, we faced a pandemic with what, a, you know, I don't know, one to two percent mortality rate and we ran out of toilet paper within, you know, four days. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah like... <laughs> <laughs> Our infrastructure, look at how much our infrastructure was, you know, getting damaged, you know, it crumbled. It was like 1%. Yeah, no, I would. uh, Yeah, this devastation, this would have been terrible. Yeah. So, so smallpox proved the primary factor, probably in allowing Cortez to conquer the Aztec empire in 1521. You know, he basically just went in and all these people are just. Yeah, in panic mode and dying of a disease and trying to help each other. Um, and, and sadly, we can say something very similar for the Inca Empire in South America. Before the Spanish even reached the Inca Empire in 1532, it was already ravaged by smallpox. Huina Capac, the Sapa Inca emperor, had already died of smallpox between 1524 and 1528, from what I was saying, you know, the trade among the indigenous populations brought the disease to everybody in the region faster than the Spanish even got there. And his eldest son, Ninan Cuyuchi, stationed in Tomabamba, which is modern-day Cuenca, Ecuador, was already dead from the smallpox epidemic as well before messengers even arrived to inform him of his succession to the throne. Hmm for the Inca empire, you know, that's how quick the disease was ravaging everybody. And that that vacuum in power led to a bloody civil war among all the Andean peoples at a time when they were dying by the hundreds of thousands as well to the scourge of smallpox. So by 1620, um, historians also say that the indigenous Andean population had declined by over 90%. Yikes. Um, and another sad fact with this, when you're talking about the Incas, is as well as the Spanish destruction that followed, uh, is that the, the this group of people called the Kepakamiya, this whole class in Inca society that were scholars who worked in this sophisticated Andean knots-based writing system that they had had for hundreds and hundreds of years, and um, you know it's it's really interesting to have these these basically whole sets of of tied cords and knotted strings but it was actually a writing system but that That's group is yeah it's and it's it's fascinating but that group was decimated as well 
which wiped out countless treasures of recorded Andean history, letters, accounting, astrology, genealogy, folk stories, poetry, and more. It didn't really leave behind enough people that knew how to read them. And of course, the Spanish, when they came through, they also tried many times to destroy these things. Because... Do you think the Spanish, when they saw these, this communication style, and somebody asked if they could read it, and they said, I'm afraid not? Yeah. <laughs> God. It's, no. all, it's so bad, it's almost good. Yeah, and, you, and you know what? The... Oh, oh gosh. That is such a bad pun. <laughs> I'm not an expert. Oh, no, 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 no. That's one of my mom's this, puns. If you ever this is not try happening. to tie not something, happening. yeah. Are you able to tie that? I'm afraid not. This is not happening right now. So, yeah, yeah and you know what? You know what? If you think about it, too, when you're talking about these Spanish conquistadors, if, if the Andean people have a writing system that they can't decipher at all, of course they're going to try to destroy it because, you know, these secrets. these peoples, yeah, it's secrets. These people have a sophisticated way of communicating each, with each other that the Spanish can't understand. Um, but sadly, most of these things did get destroyed. And even the uh, because of smallpox, the knowledge of how to read the remaining ones, too, is... Um, I think pretty decimated continuing uh, what is a sad journey in the Western hemisphere. I'm going to talk about smallpox in North America as well. Stories of loss. Yes. Yes. That's here. Here. What is, you know, um, stories among loss in North American tribes to smallpox are also numerous and devastating as well, reaching even up through the 1800s, as more tribes further west and north came into contact with the illness over time, often in conjunction with the introduction of white traders, settlers, soldiers, and abominably the forced relocations that occurred across America, you know, a lot in the 19th century. In New England, there was an epidemic from 1616 to 1619 that killed upward of 90% of the Algonquin and other indigenous peoples along the northeastern seaboard of what is the present United States. And this was before the arrival of the Mayflower in 1620. Historians oh, wow. I don't think I realized that. That's, yeah. uh, that's insane. Yeah, and, and historians posit that smallpox was a big part of this epidemic. So, like, you know, once the, the pilgrims arrived, a lot of the land in New England was vacant, but it really hadn't been vacant before. There were tribes of people that had been living there, but even right before the pilgrims came, this huge epidemic just wiped out so much of the populations. Um, and you well, just and you end can up kinda, getting I guess scattered you remnants because of, of tribes. You know, a lot of it gets introduced in the early you know? 16th century. That's time for people, you know, over 100 years, tribes can trade with the next tribes and it can filter from south america or you know central america up and up and up so yeah i guess that does make sense yeah. you know 100 years to move tribe to tribe especially if it was much more populated yikes yikes yeah and of course you know with smallpox we get waves and waves so coinciding with the american revolution just speaking a little bit later there was a major smallpox epidemic of 1775 to 82 that was actually a greater burden on North America in the time period than the revolution. So while it claimed over 130,000 American lives, and I'm talking about the smallpox epidemic, 
That's far more than the 6,800 upper estimate of people that died fighting the British during the American mm. Revolution. You know, so you're thinking way more people died of smallpox during the American Revolution in America than died of the war itself. Yeah, it's crazy. That number seems really low. Which one? Isn't 6, yeah, the 6,800. Yeah, you would imagine. I guess there weren't that many people used to war so. differently back then. Yeah. They, yeah. They, 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 well, yeah. It was it a more polite warring system. Yeah, just stand there and wait to get shot. <laughs> you know, yeah, they had like, um, you know, uh, it's it's interesting because when we recount George Washington crossing the Delaware and battling the Hessians, uh, you know, over Christmas when they were all drunk and didn't know what was going on. So George Washington and his army survived them. Uh, when I researched that, only four American soldiers, you know, colonists died. Only four <laughs> revolutionaries died in that battle. So, you know, it's like some of these battles, they didn't, it, it wasn't the numbers that we think of, you know, um, in later wars, like, like that are so devastating, like the civil war and stuff like that. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you know, a lot of times historians don't really cover the fact that so many people were dying of smallpox during the American revolution as well. And, Historians also believe that far more Native Americans may have died than what were accounted for during this wave because, again, smallpox was reaching across the Great Plains, decimating tribes on the West Coast, even at present-day Washington. We have records to, that talk about that. Um, and south to the Pueblos of New Mexico and into Mexico and north to Hudson Bay as far as, way, a far, as, far away as Alaska. So we have records at that time of, you know, the the indigenous peoples all over getting hit by that particular smallpox epidemic wave. Even Lewis and Clark in their 1804 expedition noted that the native population was far smaller than had been reported in prior European visits before the 1775 epidemic. You know, so they were actually, when they did their exploration, they were actually surprised at how few Native American communities they ran across, um, you know, just because earlier, I think fur traders and stuff, people documenting going back to the 1600s, documented a lot more people being around than than what were even encountered. So, you know, you're talking about a lot of people getting hit by smallpox and just tribes disappearing. And to continue with that, in 1832, <laughs> famous painter George Catlin had memorialized many in the Great Plains Mandan tribe, but would later be blamed that his portraits brought on smallpox. But by like him visiting and doing the portraits is what you're saying? Yes, yes. That you know, and that's the thing is that so a lot of there was a lot of Native American superstition that visiting white painters and later photographers could by by creating your portrait by taking your picture could magically you know curse you and kill you cause disease hmm. all those things but of course the thing is that that really could happen because i was like i don't know that they were wrong no yeah, they, they weren't wrong because when these people would come into these communities that hadn't really had interaction with with the white settlers yet um, yeah, like diseases would would come with them and could do real damage to these communities. So, and to go on with that, for one story to share, in June 1837, 
there was a steamboat called the St. Peter that rode up the Missouri River on its yearly trading trip from St. Louis for the American Fur Company. On board was a single crew member sick with smallpox who was cordoned off from everyone. But that was all it took when on June 19th at Fort Clark, trade thrived for two days between the Mandan tribesmen returning from a buffalo hunt and their white counterparts from the steamboat. On July 14th, after about three weeks, the first among the Mandan tribe died from smallpox. And it just went on from there. By 1838, only a year later, among the Mandan tribe, only 31 surviving Mandan remained out of a tribe that was about 1,600 members before the scourge. Yeah. And we're, yeah, and we're talking the same thriving tribe that painter George Catlin had visited only five years before. So, of course, you know, they're going to say he comes, he does these paintings, these beautiful paintings of them. And then what happens? They all die. Well, but that was five years later. You'd think that potentially the people that survived to that trading trip would have been less likely to die of smallpox because they potentially were exposed. Because the painting trip was 1832 and then 1837 exactly. when the tribe gets wiped out. So you'd right. think that they would have had like herd immunity. Now, yeah. So like in truth, George Catlin did not infect anybody with smallpox. Like he didn't, he did not bring smallpox to the community. Um, so they did not suffer from his visit, but, but the one guy in the know, boat, he was the guy. Yeah. But this guy in the boat, you know, and I think, you know, it, I, you know, also to, to make a note of this, I don't think a lot of times like, you know, white settlers, whatever would have any clue that like this would have that kind of result. I was going like, to ask they, you in your research if you came across. I always wondered that. You know, was there was there some even though they didn't have germ theory at this time? I guess did did was there any writing that suggested that settlers and, uh, and you know these uh, these folks knew that there was some association between their arrival in this? Or uh, did you come there, across that? Just curious. Yeah. So I only came across one letter. There is a letter a letter that is from a British military man in the 1700s that talks about smallpox, you know, that, that basically insinuates knowing that blankets that they have and are trading with the native people are or could be infiltrated with smallpox. Hmm. But the thing with that is that with, with, you know, I've read a lot of sources. It's like there isn't really a historical record other than this one letter to 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 make a claim that these European settlers would have known that they were passing on the disease and were doing it maliciously or doing it purposefully. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, too, in the in the books that I read, it also points out that germ theory didn't exist yet. People didn't mm-hmm. know. Like people didn't, viruses, you know, what we'll mention later, um, weren't discovered yet. They didn't even found bacteria yet. Yeah, no. Exactly. So they didn't really know. A lot of times the Europeans, though, with their belief going back from the Middle Ages and before that, that it was God's will when diseases happen to people, is that they looked at this kind of like it's God's will. And, you know, they had those concepts of manifest destiny and all those things. So... Mm-hmm. So sadly, I think they just thought, you know, well, this is this is the will, you know, will of what's supposed yep. to happen. Yeah. You know, Interesting. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, so, yeah, we're not we're not in the happy part of history <laughs> discussing this topic. But 
But um, but that same wave that I was just talking about that killed most of the Mandan tribe from 1837 to 1840, it really decimated Great Plains populations again, killing about 17,000 indigenous people along the Missouri River alone. But they also think the continued spread may have killed some 100 to 300,000 Native Americans just in that wave. Many tribes were brought to the point of extinction in this wave. And I just wanted to share that specific story because it's kind of indicative of what just happened throughout the Americas. You know, you had tribes of maybe thousands of people. And then after smallpox and these other diseases would hit, you know, it might just be a few scattered people left. Insane. So to go on with with the smallpox in the Americas, we'll talk about inoculation. So after a smallpox outbreak in Boston in 1721, there was a famous Puritan minister named Cotton Mather who convinced the local population to begin inoculation practices, um, which, again, as we discussed in our last episode, uh, it's the practice of introducing smallpox material from an infected patient into the arm of a healthy individual to create immunity to smallpox. And, you know, this would reduce the disease's local mortality rate in Boston from about 17% to 2% or less. That's a big difference. Yeah, it's a big difference. difference. You know, when the practice caught on, it spread to other colonies. And Cotton Mather was also instrumental and instrumental force in helping this gain more acceptance in Europe. And there were also some other people in Europe, too, that also pushed for this. But, you know, the real credit for inoculation practices gaining traction in America actually would go to Cotton Mather's enslaved servant. Uh, And his name is Onesimus. He was an enslaved African man that had been in Mather's household starting in, I think, 1706. But he had been inoculated in Africa before being sold into slavery And so he introduced the practice of inoculation to Mather from his peoples in Africa, uh, which was likely the Akan people of what is today Ghana. And notably, many slave communities in the Americas also continued this inoculation practice in the New World that they had learned in Africa. So they were continuing the process. African-American communities would not be decimated as badly by smallpox as the settlers would be, or Native Americans would be. What's interesting, though, is that, you know, Mather really tried to push to get these practices across the colonies to inoculate people mm-hmm. and save lives. The funny thing is that when slaves would bring this practice to their white masters, uh, there was a lot of distrust. People just assumed that African-American peoples trying to share this practice were actually trying to get white people to kill themselves. You know, they didn't they didn't believe it. They didn't believe that, you know, that it would actually work. But but then like I was saying Cotton Mather was instrumental to getting this to gain traction. Again, the real credit should go to Onesimus um, because he's the one that really brought the practice over from Africa. Yeah, really cool. Yeah. And and to go on with that, the Revolutionary War might have actually been lost to the British had George Washington not made the bold decision in 17, early 1777 to have the entire Continental Army inoculated in this way as well, when North America was in the throes of a bad smallpox epidemic, as we were just discussing. A lot of the British soldiers were inoculated, and that 
particular epidemic wave could have decimated the, you know, the colonists army. Sure. The revolutionaries army before they would have even had a chance. So with knowledge of these inoculation practices that we're talking about, um, in Europe, we get basically Cotton Mather and some other Americans saying, hey, we're inoculating people in the American colonies and we're having a lot of success with this. It's decreasing death rates from smallpox. And you also had some waves uh, in Europe. Um, you had individuals that were pushing for it as well, you know, for also learning about it through African peoples and through people in the Middle East. And with the knowledge of these inoculation practices, in May of 1796, a British physician named Edward Jenner ended up inventing what we now call vaccination when he tested the folk wisdom that dairy maids exposed to cowpox had protection from smallpox. An English dairy maid named Sarah Nelms was infected on part of her hands by one of her dairy cows, Blossom, uh, who had cowpox. <laughs> and so Jenner got this ingenious idea to test the theory out by, you, by performing the inoculation practice on eight-year-old James Phipps, who is the son of Jenner's gardener. I'm sure he had full informed consent, too. Oh, Signed yeah. paperwork. Yep, yep. Yeah, you know, it, it, I, I thought about that. I'm like, you know, it's... I've got an, I, I got a scientific idea. Can I borrow your son? I just want to try it out. <laughs> exactly. It's like, uh, you know, we need, we need test subjects and, you know, children are, are more expendable. We can, you know, I mean, you lose a child. You just make more. I know it's, it's, yes, it's crazy when you look back. Cause I don't think today we would like think, oh yeah, let's, uh, you know, if we're we're gonna experiment with a drug or experiment with a treatment, let's take little children. <laughs> Fortunately, I think we've moved past that. I, I hope we've moved past that. I hope so. So so yeah. So somehow Edward Jenner was given permission by his gardener to basically try inserting, you know, cowpox pus from Sarah's cowpox sores into James's arm. Now, this became known as a vaccine from the Latin word for cow, which is vaca. And the boy got a mild <laughs> fever and discomfort, but after 10 days, he was better. So then in July of 1796, Jenner exposed young little James to material from someone's fresh smallpox lesions. But the boy did not develop any smallpox symptoms at all, and thus... Jenner could determine that James had developed immunity to smallpox. Yeah, and I, I think here's a good good kind of place to summarize kind of what's happening here, right? So from the modern perspective, knowing how all this works, what you have is two viruses. You have two viruses that are of the same family, smallpox and cowpox, but they affect these organisms, meaning us and cows, uh, in very different ways. So whereas smallpox is extremely devastating to humans, etc., and can only go between humans, cowpox can be transmitted from cows or animals to humans, okay? So what was happening is that the milkmaids who were exposed to the sores that were on the cows would catch cowpox, which is much less dangerous to humans. But because the virus is so similar in terms of its structure to smallpox, they would build up antibodies, which would then be able to block 
smallpox from causing its normal infection. And so going back to what inoculation is, that's basically taking the actual infectious agent in its whole form mm, and giving it mm-hmm. to another person. So that's, that's what the technical definition of inoculation is. Vaccination can then be thought of as taking, and it sometimes is a whole entire infectious agent, or more commonly a part of one, like a protein or a, a broken down virus bit or whatnot and you take that and then you give it to somebody in a prepared form so that you can make their immune system ready to combat the real the real deal so inoculation and vaccination is a lot of overlap there but i think the important part is the uh the vaccination has a much more refined form or just a part of the infectious agent that you are doing in a controlled manner to incite the immune system to protect you from it in the future. And, and, you know, I think something fascinating to note about everything you said is that all this knowledge that you shared about this is not something that Edward Jenner had any clue about. You know, Mm -hmm. nobody at that time had any idea whatsoever why this worked. It would you be know, over it, about 120 years before they figured out any of these bits. Exactly. You know, it's like they they just knew it worked when when Edward Jenner discovered it and other people adopted it. So they just kept going. And I think once they saw how well it worked, it was a pretty easy sell, right? Exactly. Uh, because, you know, we're talking we're talking about something that doesn't kill you, like like inoculation practices you know, you might still have a chance Much of dying. Just yeah, like you might die from getting inoculated. It's very small compared to just getting smallpox on the street. But uh, but getting vaccinated, yeah, it's not going to kill you. You know, um, cowpox. When humans would get the cowpox, like you were saying, it, it, the symptoms were pretty mild. You know, like these dairy mm-hmm. mates would just get sores on their hands and arms for a little while, which would which would then go away. You know, because that was where they were making contact with the infected cows. Right. But, uh, you know, but it wouldn't kill you. I think it'd be fun to kind of imagine how this was uh, sold to the average person, don't you? Yeah, exactly. We now pause our regular program for a specific holiday gift idea from our sponsor, Jenner Amalgamated. Here to speak about their new line of all-natural beauty and potentially life-saving products is local Regency fashion icon, Bo Brummel. Hello, darlings. It's $17.99 already. Can you believe it? And don't you want to look your best and live into the next century? Well, now you can with the hottest new beauty and pandemic survival product on the market. That's right, folks. It's Blossom by Edward Jenner. No more dying or pesky permanent disfigurement from that slippery scourge of smallpox. No siree. And it's not just for the ladies either. Men, you can use it too. Let's talk to our product creator, shall we? Hey, Edward. Dr. Jenner. Oh, well, hello there, Bo. How are you today? I'm doing fabulous. Now that I don't need to die from the pesky pox, hee hee. Tell us, Edward, how did you do it? Oh, well, thanks for asking there, Bo. With my new line of Blossom Vaccine Beauty products, you'll be dancing in the streets like a dairy maid. You see, we use a special patented blend of milk and cowpox pussy goodness direct from famous heifer Blossom herself to recreate the dairy maid's secret weapon against unsightly age spots and sudden pandemic death. 
Sounds great, Ed, because let's face it, most of us don't have time these days to go milking diseased cows every day to try and contract smallpox fighting strain of cowpox. That's right, Bo. For those of us who aren't dairy maids, I've designed the new Blossom 2.0 Vaccine Supreme with proven smallpox fighting technology. Amazing, Ed. But what do customers have to say? Well, to answer that, we brought in satisfied customer Ruthie McSweeney. Ruthie, what do you do for a living? I'm a scullery maid, I is. And I was gonna say this. I'm sick and tired of them dairy maids always thinking they're so high and mighty and how they stay as beautiful and healthy and those parties but all the rest of us dies of smallpox. It ain't fair. Well, no more. You see, with Balsam 2.0 Vaccine Supreme, I don't get sick with no smallpox like your friends. So your friends get sick, did they? Yeah, well, my friend Felicity... She got horribly scarred, like, from the pox. Her face looks like a burnt skillet of scrambled eggs now. And another one of me friends ended up a blind beggar on the street corner. Poor Penelope. But not me. I stay as beautiful with like that dairy maid Sarah Nelms. So take that, Sarah. Use what thinks you so special. Well, I've just got me own piece of the cow pie, too, now, Sarah, dear. I'll show you. Well, that's some endorsement, and here to share what leading medical professionals are saying, we welcome London Surgeon to the Stars, Dr. Henry Klein. Henry? Oh, I tell my patients to get Blossom 2.0 Vaccine Supreme. It's great for your skin, great for your hair, great for your eyesight, it's even great for your immune system. What? You don't know what an immune system is? Don't worry about it. We doctors don't have a clue either. It's $17.99. We just know it works. Well, that's all the endorsement I need. Thanks, doctor. That was an enlightenment, wasn't it, folks? And now, just in time for the holidays, we're offering our special line of Blossom 2.0 Vaccine Supreme with 100% lifetime money-back guarantee. So if you die of smallpox anyway, just let us know for a full refund. So move on over to Jenner Amalgamated and treat yourself with Blossom by Edward Jenner. Get yours today, all supplies last. So after Jenner's discovery or invention, some people say discovery, some people say invention, when we're talking about vaccination, the vaccination efforts moved forward very quickly around the world in the early 1800s. The first vaccine mandate law in United States history came in 1810, when the Massachusetts legislature gave local health boards the authority to require vaccination. From here grew a patchwork of state and local laws through the 19th century across the United States. Many laws focused on requiring proof of vaccination for children to attend public schools. The goal being that over time, this would lead to a fully vaccinated population. So this was like the ingenious idea of legislators was, it's very hard to convince adults to get vaccinated. But you know, just like little James Phipps, you know, with that experimentation, for some reason, with humans, it's a. It was a lot easier to convince to do school children as the, uh, the first people to be mandated. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so just you know, you don't mandate the adults get it done. Just mandate that the kids get it done, and then over the course of generations, everybody that's been born will eventually be vaccinated. So one early example of this was an 1827 law in Boston that required children to show proof of vaccination to attend school. Which actually sounds very familiar to me. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, by the turn of the 20th century in the U.S., 13 states required vaccination for school children. 
and 11 states had vaccine mandates for adults as well. And I think this really just increased through the 20th century. To go across the pond to the British Empire, the govern that government passed its first related laws, the Vaccination Act of 1840, which outlawed outdated variolation practices or inoculation practices, and then provided free vaccination for the poor. So, you know, it's kind of funny to think about this. It's like in the early 1800s when vaccinations started appearing, like people were still doing inoculation around the world. Mm -hmm. They were still trying that method. Um, so, you know, it, it was slowly gaining traction. And, and like I said, the British, with this act in 1840, actually outlawed the other method, the inoculation method. Then that was followed by the Vaccination Act of 1853, mandating vaccination for infants up to three months old. Next came the Vaccination Act of 1867, which extended the age requirement for vaccination to 14 years old and added penalties for families that did not comply. And as we will discuss, these laws did not come without public backlash. When these large-scale smallpox vaccination efforts began in the early 1800s after Edward Jenner's discovery using cowpox, um, so too were there public outcries against it. Hmm, that doesn't sound familiar. Yeah, you know, people not trusting at all this new thing called vaccination. Criticisms came from various directions. You know, people had religious issues with it, scientific and political issues with it. Among Europeans, the mistrust had already been widespread at inoculation, even though it was semi-successful, clearly, at stopping smallpox. But because those practices had come from Africa, the Middle East, and China, people would say that they were bad because, you know, the people teaching these practices came from different religions, or they were mm. from different races, so they weren't to be trusted. And, and of course, that led over to people saying that vaccination also could not be trusted. You know, some of it was that they, they felt that people's blood was being polluted with that of an animal. You know, when you're putting that cow pus into your body, that you're polluting your body or you're polluting your blood. And I actually even found uh, a kind of silly British character car caricature cartoon dating from 1802, which shows... It shows Edward Jenner uh, vaccinating one person, and then you've got all these other people in the cartoon, and they're all freaking out because they've got cows, like, springing out of their bodies, you know? So, like, and this is 1802, so it's right after the, yeah. So, like, people were thinking back then, you know, like, what if I become part cow? You know, if I get, mm -hmm. if I get this cow thing put in me, you know, am I going to become part cow? Uh, because they did it that. It was a real fear at the time. This was also a time, yeah, kind of roughly around now and a little bit before this time period, kind of the 17th century, they were starting to experiment with uh, transfusions between people and animals. Oh, wow. Uh, not recommended nowadays, of course, but that was what? also a fear then that you would either take on the animal's traits, like literally physically, or that you would take on their the animal's, like, you know, traits and mood and whatever. So this was kind of a actual fear that crossed... Uh, Crossed, uh, whether you were giving blood or pus from an animal to a person. Wow, that's fascinating. You know, I did not know that they were actually that, that people were experimenting with transfusions of animal blood. Yeah, it was one of that's... the first, even before it was human to human. Wow, for a future episode. 
Yeah, it went really well. That's... <laughs> so yeah, so people, you know, people were freaking out that uh, you know that anybody that got the uh, the vaccination might become part cow in some way. And then they also, uh, you know, even uh, when we're talking about that in India too, the vaccination efforts drew backlash because of Hinduism's respect for animals, particularly cows. Hmm. You know, because cows are seen as sacred and not to be eaten, but also, of course, not to be, you know, ingested in other ways. So to put something from a cow into a person, you know, people would have had religious issues with that. Even Gandhi in the early 20th century publicly called vaccination a sacrilege in India. So he was part of the camp for people not to get vaccinated. But um, but it was interesting when I studied India because there were a few members of royalty, particularly female princesses, that got vaccinated that kind of helped the general population feel more comfortable with it. You basically, you take people that are known to the public, that are maybe famous or seen as, you know, yeah, part of the royalty, part of their nobility, and then it would help the public, general public, there's something to be said for standing in and and uh, you know if you're you're asking your populace to do a certain thing, making sure that you're willing to go along with it as well in a position of prominence. Yes, yes. So while governments across the world were instituting even mandatory vaccination laws, objectors, of course, arose that would call these mandates a violation of personal liberty and freedom. So just like I was talking about, yeah, like children, these compulsory laws for children. You know, of course, people come out of the woodwork and say, you know, this is a violation. And of course, more often it's when when you put a mandate and say adults have to do something, that's more when when these political reasonings uh, come up to, that it's, you know, an attack on personal liberty and freedom. So uh, an example, for instance, is when smallpox outbreaks in the U.S. led to vaccination campaigns in the late 19th century. There were anti-vaccine groups formed to block them with prominent examples, including the Anti-Vaccination Society of America, formed in 1879. And later, one that I thought was, was interesting was the American Medical Liberty League in the 1920s. Sounds like a bowling league. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because I've seen documents from these groups, and they would put out flyers and brochures and adverts in the media, um, you know, newspapers, etc., and magazines to support their anti-vax causes you know, and convince people vaccination is bad, don't do it, you got to fight this, fight the government. Uh, and there were court battles fought all over to repeal vaccination laws in many states. However, there was a landmark case that arose in 1902 when resident Henning Jacobson of Cambridge, Massachusetts, fought a city mandate that residents be vaccinated against smallpox following a major outbreak that had just occurred there in Boston. But he lost his court battle. Jacobson hmm. then, yeah. Um, so then he appealed the U.S. Supreme Court. Yet in 1905, the Supreme Court upheld the verdict, ruling that in the event of a communicable disease, states could enact compulsory laws to protect the public. It's the Jacobson versus Massachusetts, um, 197 U.S. 11, 1905 case. And it was the first and possibly most influential judicial decision concerning public health law ever for the U.S. Supreme Court. 
It would be insane to see that argued nowadays. It would just be so different. You you have this case. So like states could have used this to try to force people to get vaccinated for COVID as well. Mm-hmm. But um, it's just as we saw in those past times, though, you know, you just if you're in government, you deal with the potential backlash. If I remember correctly, talking to you about your 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 exhibit, you don't obviously have to spell out the similarities between modern day and ex- almost exactly like a hundred years previous, right? right. There's not there's there is no th- th- this is not a uh, subtle difference. This is exactly the same thing playing out in a new era with a new disease, right? The hesitancy, the anti-vaccination movements. It's a story as old as vaccinations, which is something that I think a lot of people may or may not realize, right? So you would think that, especially when Jenner comes and he's like, hey, I can stop this, you know, basically showing that by getting this very mild infection and giving it person to person, we can absolutely put a stamp to this disease. You would think that that evidence would be enough. And this being in an era before you have social media and widespread dissemination of disinformation, there was still an in, just sort of an innate reaction against this sort of progress in scientific discovery. And, you know, a lot of it coming from the same areas, mistrust and, you know, not understanding or poor communication or a variety of societal factors. And uh, I don't I don't know I'm going anywhere with that other than to say it's just eh, it's just sort of sad to see it play out again. Yeah, it's it's funny how. You know, and that was like I, you know, like I told you guys before, that was part of the concept of my exhibit is that I don't call out COVID or similarities to COVID throughout the exhibit, but it's just really bizarrely interesting how when I was looking at these stories throughout the history of vaccination, it's like we went through all those same processes, but maybe over more of a 200 years, you know, of these same sort of backlashes and back and forths and People mm-hmm. passing laws to force people to get it and then, you know, to get vaccinated and then maybe, you know, sometimes lightening the laws because you have riots. You know, and I had mentioned to you earlier, Max, how in Canada in 1885 in Montreal, there was a wave of smallpox. And so the local government in Montreal mandated that everybody had to get vaccinated. But it actually caused riots across the city. Mm. And people, you know, people smashed windows, people, you know, destroyed the police department. They actually attacked policemen with with guns and knives like people got really up in arms when, you know, when when, you know, a local Canadian government said everybody had to get vaccinated. Um, So they kind of had to lighten. They, They didn't get rid of the mandate, but they kind of lightened. Sure. Allowed for religious exemptions. Exactly. Yeah. Like, so if people did object, like they didn't really punish them for, for not getting vaccinated. But uh, um, yeah, so so now I'm going to discuss basically, you know, a timeline of, of what we went through from Jenner discovering or inventing the process of vaccination up to the present. And with that, I want to begin with a fun fact is that before Jenner did this in 80, 1778, a process called contact tracing was invented by John Haygarth, another British physician in the city of Chester, to develop rules for how smallpox is spread. And this process is used to this day for researching all kinds of infectious diseases like HIV, AIDS, SARS, and even for COVID-19, we used contact tracing. 
So it's it's just interesting to me that that's another one of the gifts of you know smallpox affecting our world. Well, if we can call these gifts, um, is that we ended up with contact tracing that we can use for all kinds of diseases, just like vaccination. We can use it for all kinds of diseases. So moving right along, we have Edward Jenner's development of the world's first ever vaccine in 1796. And then through the 1800s, people are getting vaccinated. And it isn't until the 1890s with this Russian botanist, Dmitry Ivanovsky, and a Dutch microbiologist, Martinus uh, Byerink, I think might be his, the pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Um, they did work with diseased tobacco plants, and that pointed to the discovery of viruses because that pathogen was a virus. They discovered that it was smaller than a bacterium, and they coined uh, Byerink, coined it a virus. We got that new term. And then it wasn't until the early 20th century that we actually realized that smallpox is also a virus. Mm-hmm. And then we have... You know, as we're vaccinating, parts of the world begin to, we begin to see full eradication of smallpox. In 1938, smallpox was eradicated in Australia, though the disease was never widespread there. Uh, In 1952, we actually managed to wipe out, eradicate smallpox in North America. In 1953, Europe eradicated smallpox. In 1959, the 12th World Health Assembly, which you know, we call the World Health Organization, begins its smallpox eradication program for the world. Then in 1967, it launches a renewed 10-year intensified smallpox eradication program. So they were trying to get serious to, for the first time ever in history, let's see if we can fully eradicate a disease since we're finding that we have been successful in certain continents completely getting rid of it. So in 1971, smallpox is eradicated in South America. In 1975, it's eradicated in Asia. And in October of 1977, we have the last naturally occurring case of smallpox in the world, which was a 23-year-old hospital cook and health worker named Ali Moa Malin in Somalia, uh, who was successfully quarantined, and he made a full recovery. And with that, smallpox was eradicated in Africa, and the entire world. And then in 1980, the 33rd World Health Assembly declared the world free of smallpox, which was a huge achievement. It marked humanity's biggest ever achievement in international public health, the first ever globally eradicated human disease. Long live the queen. Long live the queen. (laughs) I, you know, it, it's, I can't even express like how insanely immense this triumph was. This is probably one of the greatest moments in medical history. Uh, one of the greatest moments uh, that may ever be in, well, I can't say that, you don't know where things are going, but I mean, this is just such a, a landmark achievement considering this disease had 30% mortality. And even to this day, we don't necessarily know that we would have had any better treatment for it. I'm sure there's things we would throw at it. Yeah, but 30% mortality and eradicated, eradicated, gone completely. It, it just the, the fact that all of us have to learn about it just because it you know, was such a, a prominent illness and none of us, knock on wood, will ever see it is just until it escapes from a lab somewhere where it's being held. There was a smallpox laboratory outbreak at the Medical School of the University of Birmingham, UK. I might save the bulk of the story to uh, 
maybe visit you guys again at some point. I'm thinking like uh, Halloween month next year or something, because this is a true horror story. <laughs> That's um, probably right. Because <laughs> uh, smallpox did escape a lab. There was a woman, unfortunately, Janet Parker, who's a medical photographer in that building that became mysteriously ill with smallpox and died. You know, and this is one year after that we had that last case in Africa. Um, <laughs> and I won't go on with the full story, but there are some other really horrific, sad things that also happened in that story. However, small, you know, <laughs> however, the disease did not completely break out and devastate the world again. So for lack of trying to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Exactly. And well that, done, humans. you know, and it's like, okay, so we keep, you know, like one of you guys was saying last time, it's, you know, we keep little remnants of these really terrifying infectious oh, you diseases. You know, it's around. You got, it's, yeah, they're not only around, they're probably like trying to make it even worse. Somebody's juggling vials of the stuff. I, it's just how it goes. <laughs> well, with that, I think we we wrap up an enormous story, and there's so much more, obviously, to learn. Right? I want to give you uh, many thanks, James, for all the work you did uh, for the show, and just uh, let's give our listeners a little reminder of where they can find you and your, your all your upcoming work as it uh, comes out. Yeah. So so definitely. You know, check out my links that you guys have posted for me. Um, you can check me out on my Facebook and my Instagram. Uh, you can check out uh, if you want to get my information history. You'll also see that on the website for the International Museum of Surgical Science. Uh, definitely check out the museum, too. I have to say big, big props and thank yous to them for giving me this wonderful experience to delve into the world of smallpox and to be able to learn and share that with people and i thank you guys as well this has been fantastic it's about time we say we appreciate everyone listening and we'd love to hear from all of you out there if you'd like to send us a message or provide feedback we can be reached through our website www.poorhistorianspod.com there you will find links to our social media sites as well we take emails at poorhistorianspod at gmail.com and we work to respond to all posts on our various social media accounts if you have time, please go and leave us a nice five-star review on iTunes or whichever platform you choose. Or go find a friend and uh, let them know about the show. Even if they didn't ask you, go ahead and tell them anyway and uh, take their phone from them. Try to get them to unlock it and go ahead and subscribe. Make, <laughs> make sure they subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or whichever, <laughs> whichever app you use. Trust me, it does work. If you're old-fashioned, tie up your landline and fire up that 2400-baud modem and leave us a message on a bulletin board system. I'm sure we'll get to it eventually. With that, until next time, four historians are signing out AMA. And he's back. We definitely didn't talk about you while you were gone. I don't know. I set us all up for success. Plug my phone in. It rings through the speakers. Oh, it's great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the worst. Dog door guy's early. <laughs> all right. We can go ahead I have a lot to up. manage here. I have a lot okay. to manage. All right. It's okay. You know, it's okay. Fully independent children, dogs. Sure. <laughs> Sorry. Do you wait? I thought you were just going to go on. Yeah, we start, no, we we're done, we can't actually. Go on without no, you. we can't yeah, not have you be part of it. Okay, well, that's oh, that's so you got, sweet of you, you guys. Up, you walked away. James that's so was sweet. Pissed. We had to talk oh, him down. Like, yeah, I was, was, I was like, down. you know what? I'm going to.
See ya. I'm like the guy in like the third row of the packed house whose phone rings out loud in the middle of an opening monologue. Yeah, that's that's. Oh yeah. Or like, like the candies. Or yeah. Or yeah. Oh, the candies. Yes. I hate that. Oh my god. Oh, I just had the movies the other day. I was like, and it, they oh. took forever. I was like, what are you opening? Are you opening? Yeah. Is it like a oh, fifteen individually wrapped caramels right next to me? Oh, they even have caramels thinks- anymore. Like slow and really slow and loud is going to be better. Right. They're yeah. like, I'll just do this really slowly. Maybe nobody will notice. Then they start out that way and then they decide on. they're like, they know they're bothering everybody around them. So then they just dive into it like super hard to try to get it over with. But it makes more noise and they're more embarrassed and it becomes right. this whole social faux pas. I don't know if it's, this right. is similar. I had a show on Saturday and we're playing through and like whatever. Your, your burlesque show? No, the Wait, band. What show? What oh, kind of show? Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, cover band. So we play Better oh. Band by Pearl Jam to open the third set. And it's like a slower song. And this girl, as I'm playing the intro part, walks up right in front of me, turns around and starts twerking. <laughs> <laughs> like this isn't the song to twerk on. What? What are you doing? Totally, like I, I couldn't even sing because I started. Everybody to laugh. knows you like, twerk to even flow. Yeah. Right. Uh, so weird. Right. She got you. That she did. Her, that was her practical did you, joke. Did you bring yeah. the whole show to a stop? No, you can't like, stop. That everybody knows can't you can't stop. 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 You got to keep going. Oh gosh. <laughs> yeah, they do. Oh. Yeah, lots, lots of alcohol at his shows. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Copious amounts. Yeah. Aaron was uh, getting down during one of them. I was just high on life, man. That was only like two drinks in. Was the person twerking Aaron? It was two drinks in. No, no, I know. No, there's twerk. actually, there was a... Throw uh, my hip. It was <laughs> a girl, and then the, then a guy came up, because I don't think he wanted to be outdone, so then he, like... Oh, no. <laughs> doing very... Uh, not very well attended, so there's just two people, and then the big gap, and then some people in the back, and uh, it was something... <laughs> Oh, well, those two needed to have that's their moment, apparently. Yeah, Everybody that, else gave them their space. That's a perfect they, they end, James. I think you could just pick up from that story uh, yeah. with, uh, you know, sure. talking about how smallpox ravaged humanity. We still do that in the ER. When somebody comes in and says, oh, it's real quiet, everybody gets pissed off because they're like, now it's going to get busy. <laughs> don't say the keyword. <laughs> It's true. Exactly. It's, this yeah. is such a pervasive uh, thing in emergency medicine that they've actually taken grant money to study it. Does it actually work? Because it is such a well, it is such a <laughs> held belief that you could walk into an ER and say it's quiet, or there's a you know if you point out there's a full moon, they have done studies on it. It turns out that it's pure coincidence. <laughs> no, that's wow. not. It doesn't feel that's like not it. True. No. It doesn't. So, no, but so you know, one thing is true. whether or not from... walking into an ER and saying it's quiet causes more more business to come in if you walk into it and say quiet you will anger every nurse working with you every single every that single 100 percent of the time yeah i'm, so, I'm that sorry that is hilarious Jake. we that digress. is hilarious